0: In the 2020 general session, the Utah legislature revised its statutes to classify bigamy, the act of marrying somebody while you're already married to someone else, as a minor infraction subject to small fines rather than a felony subject to serious jail time as it had been for years. News accounts soon reported that Utah had essentially decriminalized polygamy. Other cities throughout the country have done even more. Cambridge, Massachusetts, home to Harvard University, recently revised its municipal code to define a domestic partnership as one involving, quote, two or more persons who consider themselves to be a family. And so Cambridge now legally recognizes polygamous and polyamorous relationships, didn't just devote them to an infraction, but actually gives them legal sanction. There's some important background history here. The 1856 Republican Party platform said it was both the right and imperative duty of Congress to prohibit in the territories those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy, and slavery. And a Republican Congress did pass an 1862 law banning bigamy in the territories, and then an 1863 law banning slavery in the territories. This was just a couple of years before the constitutional abolition of slavery in 1865. Marriage was never a matter for the Constitution, it was mainly a state and local issue. But no state sanctioned polygamy, and the federal government banned the practice anywhere it had exclusive jurisdiction. In the 19th century, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practiced plural marriage and found themselves on the wrong side of state and federal laws. The first challenge to the federal law came in a case called Reynolds v. United States in 1878. A member of the LDS Church, George Reynolds married two women in the Utah Territory. He clearly broke the law, but he argued that the law was an unconstitutional violation of his First Amendment right to freely exercise his religion. Congress shall make no law abridging the free exercise of religion, and this law passed by Congress did just that. Or at least he argued that it did just that. It abridged his free exercise rights. Now, there are two ways we could take Reynolds' claim. Both are important for how we understand the Free Exercise Clause. First, Reynolds might argue that the law is designed to prevent him from freely exercising his religion. That is the law's intent and its effect, and the whole law needs to be thrown out because it targets religion. Or, alternatively, Reynolds might argue that the law has some valid public purpose, but that he should be exempt from the law as a way to accommodate his religious practice. There's no need to strike the law down completely to say that it's unconstitutional, but judges should nonetheless recognize certain religious exemptions to the reach of the law as a way to stay faithful to the Free Exercise Clause and to the protection of religious liberty. On that latter point, the argument for religious exemptions, this is what Chief Justice Waite wrote for the Supreme Court in the Reynolds case. In our opinion, the statute immediately under consideration is within the legislative power of Congress. It is constitutional and valid as prescribing a rule of action for all those residing in the territories and in places over which the United States has exclusive jurisdiction. This being so, the only question which remains is whether those who make polygamy a part of their religion are accepted from the operation of the statute. If they are, then those who do not make polygamy a part of their religious belief may be found guilty and punished, while those who do must be acquitted and go free. This would be introducing a new element into criminal law. Laws are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief and opinions, they may with practices. Suppose one believed that human sacrifices were a necessary part of religious worship. Would it be seriously contended that the civil government under which he lived could not interfere to prevent a sacrifice? Or if a wife religiously believed it was her duty to burn herself upon the funeral pile of her husband, would it be beyond the power of the civil government to prevent her carrying her belief into practice? So here, as a law of the organization of society under the exclusive dominion of the United States, it is provided that plural marriages shall not be allowed. Can a man excuse his practices to the contrary because of his religious belief? To permit this would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief superior to the law of the land, and in effect to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Government could exist only in name under such circumstances. According to Reynolds, then, no religious exemptions to generally applicable laws because that would erode the core meaning of the rule of law. After that case, some states and the federal government passed laws requiring voters to swear that they were not polygamists before they could vote. It was a way to disenfranchise and limit the political influence of members of the LDS church. That was the case with Samuel Davis, a polygamous member of the church who was convicted of falsely taking the voters' oath in the Idaho Territory. He appealed the conviction, arguing that the oath violated his First Amendment right to freely exercise his religion. The Supreme Court decided the case of Davis v. Beeson in 1890. And in a unanimous decision, the Lincoln appointee to the court, Stephen Field, wrote this, The First Amendment to the Constitution, in declaring that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or forbidding the free exercise thereof, was intended to allow everyone under the jurisdiction of the United States to entertain such notions respecting his relations to his Maker and the duties they impose as may be approved by his judgment and conscience, and to exhibit his sentiments in such form of worship as he may think proper, not injurious to the equal rights of others, and to prohibit legislation for the support of any religious tenets or modes of worship of any sect. It was never intended or supposed that the amendment could be invoked as a protection against legislation for the punishment of acts inimical to the peace good order, and morals of society. Like Reynolds, the court in Davis versus Beeson concludes no religious exemptions to generally applicable laws. One result was that the LDS Church abandoned the practice of polygamy in 1890 just after this case. Scholars of the First Amendment think about this as the first era of free exercise jurisprudence where the court would uphold generally applicable laws made for the peace and the order of the community that nonetheless burdened people's religious practices like the practice of polygamy. There's no First Amendment right to be exempt from this otherwise valid law. Some things then changed in the 20th century that took us into a second era of free exercise jurisprudence. Above all, the country became more religiously diverse, and the Supreme Court took on a new regard for minority groups of all kinds. Recall footnote 4 of Caroline Products, where the court says that it will have a more exacting judicial scrutiny for laws that infringe the rights of discrete and insular minority groups, including religious minority groups. Things look different then when we get to the case of Sherbert versus Werner in 1963, and this case marks our second era of religious exemptions. Here are the basic facts. Adele Sherbert was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and she observed Sabbath on Saturday. She was fired from her job at a South Carolina textile mill because she wasn't available to work on Saturday. She was having trouble finding another job that didn't require her to work on Saturdays as well so she applied for unemployment benefits from the South Carolina Employment Security Commission. Her application was then denied. State law said you had to be able to work, available to work, and seeking work to be eligible for unemployment. Sherbert sued Charlie Verner and some members of the South Carolina Unemployment Commission, saying that they had violated her First Amendment right to freely exercise her religion. She wanted a First Amendment exemption to the rule she could have pointed out that South Carolina law actually forbids the mills from operating on Sunday. And if they're allowed to operate on Sunday due to a state of emergency, there's a specific provision in state law that prevents forcing anyone to work on Sunday against the dictates of their conscience. So maybe there could have been an equal protection case to be made. If the state provides one kind of exemption for religion, then they have to provide the other two. But that's not the argument that Adele Sherbert made. She argued that the First Amendment obligated the state to protect her free exercise of religion by granting her a religious exemption to the general terms of the state's unemployment laws. Justice William Brennan, writing for a majority of the court, agreed. It's clear that the law burdens her free exercise of religion, he says, just as much as a law fining her for worshiping on Saturday. To condition the availability of benefits upon the appellant's willingness to violate a cardinal principle of her religious faith effectively penalizes the free exercise of her constitutional liberties, Brennan writes. So how are we going to sort out these claims? According to what becomes known as the Sherbert Test, we must first ask whether some general government policy incidentally burdens a religious practice. If it does, then we must ask whether there is nonetheless a compelling governmental interest in pursuing that policy each claim of free exercise then must be weighed against a competing governmental interest. And so, just a few years later, for example, the court found that a general law in Wisconsin that required formal education until the age of 16 must make exemptions for members of Amish communities who have their children work on the farm after the 8th grade. The court said that there's no compelling interest here for the state to require their children to continue in school. But if the Amish said, we don't believe in any formal education at all, we won't even do grade school or middle school, then the court presumably would have said actually the state's interests are sufficient here to override your free exercise claim. This new Sherbert era, then, has an answer to the slippery slope problem identified in Reynolds and other 19th century cases. If someone claimed a religious right to practice child sacrifice or to burn a widow in the funeral pile of her husband, then we can simply say that the government has a compelling interest in preventing that practice. We can even recognize the religious sincerity of the person looking for an exemption, grant them that this is a religious practice. But nonetheless, we would say the government can burden your religion if the government has a compelling reason to do so. And in these cases, the government's reasons are compelling. Some cases will be harder than others. Some will have some gray areas. What if a policy prevents inmates from growing their beards at a certain length? What if a city policy prevents ritualistically slaughtering animals? What if someone doesn't want to be forced to pay for a health insurance plan that covers contraception or abortion? There are two other important developments. We're going to pick those up in the next episode in a conversation with Notre Dame professor Philip Munoz, a leading expert on the free exercise clause. The first development is a move away from the Sherbert era in a 1990 case called Oregon v. Smith. No religious exemptions for generally applicable laws, because exemptions are antithetical to the rule of law and make everyone a law unto himself. The second development is Congress's passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the 1990s as a direct response to the court's decision and as an attempt to legislatively require a return to something like the Sherbert test. Professor Munoz is going to help us sort through these interesting and thorny constitutional issues when we reconvene on Thursday.